Edmund Nielsen Woodwinds has been serving the Double Reed community for 70 years. Nielsen sells a wide variety of oboe, oboe de mort, English horn, bassoon, and contrabassoon reeds and cane, as well as reed-making accessories, reed cases, and lafrex. And of course, they have the classic Nielsen wedge knife, which features a double hollow ground with a choice of handle size. In addition, they have many other knives available. Nielsen has long been known for their large heckle bassoon vocal inventory. Fill out their online trial form to start a trial and find the perfect heckle vocal for you. For all your double reed accessories, Nielsen is ready to help you. Hey bassoonists, are you looking to ramp up your reed making? Well, Barton Kane has the solution for you. They offer over 60 variations of precision gouged, shaped, and profiled bassoon cane. Use coupon code free shipping for orders over $150. This includes international orders. Go shop now at www.bartoncane.com. Hi, I'm Galit Kaunitz. And I'm Jackie Wilson. And you're listening to Double Read Dish, a podcast for oboists, bassoonists, and the people who love them. I just saw you. I know. Do you miss me? <laughs> I do, but I don't have long to wait because we're going to see each other in just a couple of weeks. So this is kind of perfect. I know. I'm so excited. And it was awesome to see you. And thank you so much for letting me come play a recital at your school for your students. It was awesome. Oh my gosh. It was beautiful, beautifully played. And it was so much fun to hang out. And we should probably confess that we had planned to do the dish while we were in the same place together. And then we were just having too much fun hanging out and said, we can't do work. We just need to be friends right now. So (laughs) yeah, I mean, we were just talking about dogs and (laughs) there was no time left. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) I could talk about my dog for the rest of time. So maybe we should jump into the topic of our dish. Yeah. Today's topic is cautionary tales, basically laying out all of our mistakes so that other people can learn from them and hopefully avoid the pitfalls that we've fallen into when it comes to our instruments. Woof. Yeah. So do you have any um, traumatic tales to speak of? I guess I had just graduated high school. It was the summer before my freshman year of college. I went to the Eastern Music Festival and they had me play English horn. It was my first time really playing English horn. And I remember I was nervous about getting to rehearsal on time. So I was in my dorm room and I had been practicing my part. And so I put the English horn in the case. When I put the case on the bed, I was thinking, oh, I'll just zip that up before I leave. I don't know why. Anyway, it was one of those uh, cases without the inside case. <laughs> mm-hmm. So it's either, it's either open or closed. And anyway, I grabbed it by the handle and the whole thing came tumbling to the ground. I did the wrong thing. I I took it to my teacher and I was like, I don't know what happened. It's just broken. And he was like, you don't know what happened. I was so 
embarrassed and ashamed. <laughs> and finally, I confess, I was so embarrassed. And he was like, okay, that's okay. These things happen. We'll get it fixed. But you really have to own up to it. <laughs> your fault. So that's been my philosophy ever since. But man, the shame (laughs) that I felt in that moment because it was so broke. Well, we did a call for participation and your story is reminding me of a myriad of similar stories that we got about Bona cases. Mm -hmm. Math sticks out to me. Freshman year of undergrad, I had just switched to a Bona case and was putting my bassoon away after a wind ensemble dress rehearsal. I didn't grab the upper handle to make sure I had zipped up as I always do now and basically threw my bassoon all over the floor in front of the entire band. (sighs) By a miracle, the bassoon was barely harmed, but the embarrassment still remains to some degree, even six years later, to which uh, Jeffrey Lyman from the University of Michigan responds that he did the same thing with two different bassoons. Those cases are famous for looking closed when they aren't. Those Bonin cases can be treacherous. You got to triple check. I have another one. It was when you and I with our trio mate, Corey, were in Wisconsin <laughs> I know what's coming now. That's all I need to know. Okay, yes, please become cautionary tales into true confessions. So please continue. True confessions and cautionary tales. Okay. So we were taking all of the things out of the van. Jackie, you put your bassoon case on your back. We all got our stuff out. It was a hatchback. And I didn't look around before I just, with all my strength, slammed the back door shut and I didn't see you because you're such a tiny peanut but you were standing in the way of the door and I literally with all my strength put like pulled this door down and it slammed so hard into the top of your bassoon case one inch from your head I heard that sound and I thought I had killed you I really thought I had killed you and you were like (laughs) (laughs) I just about had a heart attack, but all I could do was nervous laugh. (laughs) It was so hard that you would have been dead. I have to agree that hospitalization would have been the minimum. It was a lot of force of a very heavy metallic object, very close to my cranium. Our guardian angels were out that day. And they were watching and preventing grave injuries. So in the future, look around you before you slam that door. Don't break your friends. Anyway, what's yours? <laughs> when I was an undergraduate, it was my junior year, I had the bassoon that I was using, which was actually borrowed from my teacher. It was her personal second bassoon. It was stolen out of a car. I don't call a lot of things stupid, but this was really stupid. (laughs) So Chris, my now husband, and I went to lunch in downtown Spokane. Not a horrible place, but it has its fair share of crime. It was very naive to leave something in the car, period, anything of value. And um, I stupidly 
left my bassoon, my backpack. Um, that was in the day of CDs and there was a, a bunch of like CDs mm-hmm. in the car and we just left all of our belongings in the car and went in and had lunch and came back and the window was smashed and everything was gone, including this bassoon. And I, of course, immediately start freaking out. Doubly so, because it's not even your bassoon. That was the big thing. It was not mine. So the next several days were spent, um, you know, calling pawn shops and, and trying to get it back. And the newspaper, because my teacher, who I was borrowing it from, was in the local symphony, the newspaper actually did a story on it. And so it got a lot of attention and people were paying uh, a lot of attention to it. And it was, of course, humiliating. It was, it was a horrible time. One, because I felt awful. And two, I was financially independent from the time I was 18. And there wasn't a clear, like, whose insurance should be responsible or or that type of thing. And without getting into the nitty gritty, it was very quickly looking like the buck would stop with me and I was going to have to pay to replace this soon. And I knew that all the money I had saved up to apply to an audition to graduate school was gone. And uh, I just saw the end of my dream. And I remember one day riding the public transit home. It had been gone for like three or four days and just like starting to sob on this bus because I started thinking about like, you know, college is the end of me playing bassoon. I'm going to have to pay for this mistake. And I started thinking, I haven't played Scheherazade yet. And I just started going through all the repertoire that I had not played yet that I thought at that point I would never get to. And I just started sobbing on this bus. It it was incredibly hard. It was incredibly difficult. And at that point, I was using a case that was essentially a big cylinder. And whoever stole it must have either thought it was golf clubs or a rifle. It didn't look like a bassoon. And so about four days later, the bassoon was found leaning beside a dumpster. (gasps) The theory is they thought they were stealing something of value. And when they opened it up and saw this musical instrument, they dumped it. They couldn't do anything with it. They apparently didn't even know they could pawn it. So someone who had read the newspaper article found it and called the spokesman review and it was returned. And it ended up being the biggest mistake that fortunately I did not have to pay for. All I can say (laughs) is it's really easy. And I'll I'll even hear my students say, oh, it's just cape. Or you won't even leave your bassoon in your car. Uh, It's just this little old town or whatever. And people kind of underestimating their environment. It's in the trunk. It'll be fine. Don't leave your instruments in the car. Let me tell you as someone who almost had to pay for that mistake. And even if insurance had covered it, you know, the trauma of having your instrument stolen, it is just not worth it. Put it on your back and take it into the grocery store. 
It was so horrible. And, and the great thing was, you know, the newspaper article put it on people's radar. So it was ultimately returned. But the, the hard thing was, I'll be completely honest, you know, this was the most devastating thing to happen to me at that point. And it's still one of the top five, definitely. And to a lot of other people, it was this quirky tale. So people spoke to me about it. <laughs> all the time. I actually won a concerto competition, um, not associated with my school. And before I went out, the MC introduced me by telling this story. (gasps) Um, It was a part of local color for a while. And that was, was horrible. It was having to relive my most humiliating and traumatic moment over and over and over again. Yeah. It's reliving your trauma. Right. So maybe that was, you know, God, higher power, whatever, you know, you believe in really making the point to me um, that you did not have to pay the price this time, but adjust accordingly. So, uh, you know, wherever I am, my bassoon is with me or it is locked safely in my home or in my office. And get that thing insured. Yes. Oh, yes. Get it insured. This podcast is not brought to you by Clarion Insurance, but they are very affordable and they have great coverage (laughs) and uh, they also have great Jersey accents. So when you call to renew, they're like, Clarion Insurance, how may I help you? (laughs) So that was like the absolute worst. And my love and sympathy goes out to anyone else who's had their instruments stolen or anything stolen because it's a very violating, hard feeling. And uh, Yeah. Don't leave your instruments in your car. Okay. Onward. Dylan says, once upon a polar vortex in Wisconsin. Which is what, like nine months out of the year. Yeah. It's like (laughs) 364 days. (laughs) One day in Wisconsin. Fix that for you. (laughs) One of my more too cool for school, attitude heavy high school students left his bassoon in his car all day before coming to lessons. Earlier in the week, the cold was so terrible that frost accumulated inside many buildings along the exterior doors and window frames. So when my student opened the ice box of a case, not only did the instrument begin to audibly crack, but several pads also fell out. A few unlucky pads froze their tone holes, likely from whatever moisture that didn't have a chance to wick away. So began the first of several life lessons during his regularly scheduled bassoon lessons. The instrument appeared on eBay as a parts or project instrument about a month later. That is bleak. Wow. That is banana. (laughs) Oh, can I read you the submission from Hannah? Please. It's been so long, so I can't remember what grade I was in or what bassoon it was, but I remember leaning my bassoon in a corner while I was taking a break. As I walked away, I watched it fall in slow motion with the vocal making first contact with the carpet. The vocal was squished at the neck, and I remember trying to see if it would play. Expensive $300 lesson for a middle schooler, and I learned to take the vocal out anytime I put the bassoon down. Yes. And this is easy like to have happen because bassoonists put bassoons in the corner all the time. Stop that. 
Learn from Patrick Swayze. Nobody puts baby in a corner. No one puts baby in the corner. And your bassoon is your baby. So don't put baby in the corner. Put it in a bassoon stand. All of our student listeners are like, what are they talking about? What's baby in a corner? I don't get it. Educate yourselves. Adrian gave us this very memorable submission. OMG. I had a student who got her swab stuck in her oboe and the local music store decided to melt it out with a heating rod. Oh my God. (laughs) I think we're using repair person liberally in this particular case. successful swab extraction but they also managed to melt the inside of her plastic oboe as well bits of plastic stuck inside the tone holes had to replace the whole top joint no uh no i don't even know if i have an adequate response my heart just constricted I feel like that person should maybe not be allowed in a music store anymore. I'm not good in science, but like, I know that plastic melts. So this is from Janet. Freshman year of college, I was sitting on a very unstable piano bench while practicing. The bench ended up collapsing under me. And as I was falling, I threw my oboe at the wall, (laughs) ended up cracking the bell and bending a lot of keys. I shouldn't laugh, but the image is so funny. Yes. (laughs) We're not laughing at you. We're crying with you. Yes, exactly. (laughs) And last, we got a lot of stuck swab stories. So uh, Mm -hmm. that's definitely a common thread in these cautionary tales. Uh, But Jillian, shout out to Jillian Camwell, says... While playing in the pit for a Broadway show, I had certain places marked to swab, so I knew I'd have ample time to swab out both my oboe and English horn. I always run my hand down the length of the swab before dropping it down my instrument to check for knots. Well, I missed one this time. I panicked. Never try to force a swab out. Even though I tell my students this, I didn't know what else to do in the moment. I turned to the clarinet player and told him to pull. No luck. Oh, no, Jillian. I still had a couple of minutes of dialogue before we had to play. I grabbed my oboe and my cell phone and ran out of the pit. I practically threw my instrument and the phone at the contractor. My swab is stuck. Call my friend. (laughs) <laughs> and ask her to come with a swab extractor and oboe. I ran to my chair and sight transposed the rest of the first act on English horn, my hero. Oh. Uh, oh my God. I was so lucky that by the time the act had finished, my friend who'd miraculously been home was working on extracting my swab and she'd brought her oboe for me. Luckier still, I didn't need her oboe, just a new swab. I always tell my students this cautionary tale and now own my own swab extractor. That is a very intense story. Quick thinking for sight transposing on the English horn. And also with swab extractors, be so careful when you're using them because if you scratch the bore, it's over. Well, and the other thing I would say about stuck swabs is don't pull. 
which we all know that, but when your swab is stuck, when you're panicking and you have all that adrenaline going through your body, for some reason, our minds lose all connection to sense. And we do the counterintuitive <laughs> thing. We're like, no, this isn't reality. It can work. I can pull this through. Pull as hard as possible. You can't. You won't. Don't be like Jillian. You know, I don't know if it was cats. I don't know if it was rent. I don't know if it was grease. <laughs> but she, you know, Rizzo was throwing the milkshake in Kaniki's face. And she, instead of enjoying <laughs> this lovely piece of musical theater, was trying to unextract her swab. <laughs> You don't want to miss summer loving, so you better <laughs> make sure you're swamped. What no knots. It's <laughs> happening right now. Summer loving had me a blast. Summer loving happened so fast. I met a girl crazy for me. So I want to talk to you guys about Singin' Dog Double Reads. Singin' Dog Double Reads is an online double read shop and one of the largest suppliers of high quality and affordable professional and student reads for oboe and bassoon in the USA. Visit them at www.singindog.com to see all of their products and you'll be glad you did. That's Singin' Dog Double Reads. Everyone knows that Genda Industries is known for their reed knives, sharpening, and overall amazing quality and service in the double reed world. But there is so much more going on at Genda Industries. Did you know you can get oboe and bassoon reeds from Genda Industries Artisan Mall? The Genda Industries Artisan Mall is like a farmer's market filled with talented local and regional reed makers selling their reeds. It's a great way to try out some new reeds from new makers. Who knows? One day they may be your reeds for sale. Add the code DRDGENDA, all caps, no spaces, at checkout and get 10% off any Genda reed knife, maintenance kit, reed knife sharpening book, cutting block, and read tool roll. Visit them at www.gendaindustries.com. Oh, and they're more than just read knives. I am so happy to welcome to Double Read Dish, Judith Farmer, who teaches bassoon at the USC Thornton School of Music. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Would you start by telling us how you got started playing the bassoon? Well, I, I think my story is probably pretty typical. Um, I started on clarinet in fourth grade, and when I got to junior high, my high school band needed a bassoon player, and I got elected because I had big hands. So. <laughs> Perfect reason. <laughs> My sister played the oboe. She's four years older than I am. And she had so many privileges because uh, she played the oboe. We came from a very small town in northeastern Pennsylvania. And uh, she got to go to state and regional band and orchestra two years ahead of people who played clarinet or flute, you know, more normal instruments, uh, because they're always eager, especially in that kind of area at that age, um, for double reed players. They say, oh, I want to play the oboe. But when I got to eighth grade and uh, I said, I want to play the oboe, <laughs> not really having any understanding of its role in any ensemble, <laughs> um, they said, oh, we, we've passed out all the oboes. 
take this. This is about the same. So, <laughs> <laughs> so that was uh, the beginning of my illustrious career. And uh, they, they gave me the bassoon and told me to take it home and practice and come back and have a lesson a week later. And I took it home and I couldn't figure out how to put it together. <laughs> so I, I had to go to my first lesson to say, I'm sorry, I couldn't practice because I couldn't figure out how to put it together. <laughs> so, <laughs> Um, but things improved from there, I'll say. <laughs> <laughs> so could you talk us through getting serious about the bassoon, how you came to view it as a potential career path and the educational trajectory that you took thereafter? I'm probably going to be a little contradictory now, but uh, I think, again, I was probably pretty typical. So after a year, when I was like 14, I said, oh, this is what I want to do. And if it means being second bassoon in the worst orchestra on the planet, that's fine. This is what I want to do. Um, and again, I think it's typical for young kids in high school. They're the only ones, and they're certainly the best ones for, you know, 20 or 50 mile radius. And then you get to college and your eyes get very opened. <laughs> it's like what's really out there. But as I say, I was very enthusiastic about music from the beginning. I'm I want to preface everything I'm going to say now with a huge thank you to everyone who accompanied me on this part of my path. Um, so I come from a very small town. We had the great good blessing that um, the music program in our public school was excellent. It was like the best thing about the whole town was the music program in the schools. And uh, both of my parents were trained musicians, so that, of course, was a help. I started piano with my mom when I was five. And... Um, so they, you know, did the good parent thing when I got to be a junior in high school. We did the college tour and went and looked at schools and um, ended up going to IU, which I loved. And um, started out as, I wanted to be a, my high school band director. That's what I wanted to be because he was my hero. And um, after I did my first semester of having to do all those other woodwinds, <laughs> I said, maybe this is not the right path for me. <laughs> um, so I, I switched to a double major in um, bassoon performance and Germanic languages. I've always been interested in languages as well. And IU has this fantastic program for junior year abroad in Vienna. And that was a good fit for me because of the German and the, and the music. And I just stumbled into the bassoon studio of Karl Erdberger, who was Milan Turkovich's teacher and we were a very good fit. <laughs> he was very strict, and you had to be very disciplined, but I responded well to that. And um, we had two lessons a week, which I think is a wonderful thing. And I, in preparing uh, to, for talking with you today, I did listen to a number of your podcasts, and I just have to say bravo to both of you. It's really a wonderful thing you're doing, and I enjoyed listening to the podcast so much. Oh, thank, thank you so you. much. Um, so I know you've talked to a couple other people who also studied in Europe. And um, so you're familiar with the, the studio system where all of the students show up for everybody's lesson. And I just find it such an effective way to teach because you, you hear the master teacher teach the very young ones and you hear him teach the very advanced ones. And you can absorb so much just by listening. Mm -hmm. So when it's your turn, you, you've already got an idea of what's, wished for. So I, I find the approach excellent. And I, I try to carry some of that into my teaching here. Um, we have a two hour studio class every week and everybody plays for everybody. 
And I just, I wish, I wish I could copy what we had in Vienna, which was <laughs> two lessons a week with everybody listening, but it's, you know, it's, it's a start. It's, <laughs> it's a <laughs> step in that direction. Anyway, so I, I had three years uh, with Erdberger in Vienna and uh, I came home for summer school in between two of those years to complete my degree at IU where I got to study with Mordecai Reschman. Um, I would say those were my two main influences, Carl Erdberger and um, Mordecai Reschman. You already mentioned benefiting from the system in Europe, but could you maybe uh, compare and contrast the priorities of European pedagogy versus American pedagogy was not just the method different, but the type of things that were stressed different in your experience? I, I think it's fair to say that the stress is always on the music. In my training in Vienna, the stress was always on the music. If you were doing scales, if you were doing your Mildy studies, if you were doing Jean-Pierre, you know, things that are really pretty basically technical exercises, um, you always had to try to, you know, shape it well, make it sound beautiful, um, not, not just play anything technically or mechanically. This might come up later in the interview, but in, in my experience in participating in, in uh, auditions on either side of the screen, here and abroad, when I was living in Europe, I found people were likely to be much more uh, forgiving of a technical club if they heard somebody was saying something. Mm. They heard uh, uh, someone expressing a musical idea. And here, and I know it's, the numbers are different, I think. You know, if you're sitting on a committee here for a big orchestra and you have to get through 100 applicants, you, you have to find some way to eliminate people. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I think it, here it can come down to you know, a little, a little flub will carry a heavy penalty here. And could you talk us through embarking on your professional journey post-education? Well, I, I was actually very fortunate. I, I won my first job, principal job in a full-time orchestra when I was 22, during my last semester of school. That has a a funny little preface. My, my best friend at the beginning of my third year of school said, so what are you going to do next year when you graduate? And of course I hadn't given it any thought. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so I sent out my application to um, the equivalent, you probably know, of international musician in Europe is uh, Das Orchester. And so I sent out my application to like 30 orchestras in the fall of my last year of school. And I got... 29 rejection letters. <laughs> mm -hmm. And uh, in March of that year, I got an invitation to Braunschweig, which is in Hanover in northern Germany, to come and audition for principal bassoon in their orchestra in 10 days. <laughs> oh! <laughs> so, you know, that's, I, whenever I have something challenging coming up now, I try to go back to that inner 22-year-old, just, you know, say, okay, I'll do that. Sure, no problem. Fine. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, you know, so I got on a train and went 600 miles and uh, went and played this audition. And I think one of the great advantages of doing auditions at that age is you, you have zero baggage. You, you have no expectations. You just go in. You're so used. You know, one of the good things about the studio system of teaching is 
you're so used to playing in front of people, it takes a lot of the butterflies. So you just go in and you do it. And <laughs> so I was very lucky. I got a very good job during my last semester of school. And I, I wish that could happen to everybody because it just makes life very easy. And I see my students who are certainly well-qualified now graduate and just, you know, piecing it together, you know, doing the audition circuit thing, gathering students, making reads to sell all the things they do. I just, oh boy, <laughs> they skipped that part. <laughs> but, um, yeah, so I, I was very lucky. I got a, a nice job right out of school. I was there for four years, a little over four years, and got to play almost every major piece in our repertoire there. I have to say, I was very lucky that way. So how did you find your way back to the United States? Uh, well, there, there's a little detour after, after the job in northern Germany. Um, I did audition for and was able to get a uh, first bassoon job with the Austrian Radio Orchestra in Vienna. So I was there for 12 years, and um, that's where I met my husband, Gernot Wolfgang, who's a composer. And he had just come back from spending two years on a Fulbright at Berkeley in Boston, and he loves the United States. Mm -hmm. <laughs> he just loves it here. And, um, you know, I, I had a very good orchestra job. I had a very nice teaching job in Graz, which is the second largest city in Austria. And then when you come back from a Fulbright, you have to stay in your home country for two years to disseminate your knowledge. That's part of the deal, at least mm -hmm. in Austria. And so we met and he, he said, how would you feel about um, taking a year off from your job next year and we'll go spend a year in the States? And when you're smitten and newly in love, <laughs> of course, sure. Whatever you want, no dear. <laughs> sure. So we did that and he... Uh, did the film scoring program at USC. And during that time, I had the good fortune to work with Stephen Maxson. Mm. I had the romantic notion that, oh, it would be fun to go back to school <laughs> after I'd been a professional for about 15 years. <laughs> so we did that. And I went back to my job after that year and Gernot stayed here getting established. And um, so for two years, we had this long distance relationship between Vienna and LA, trying to decide what we wanted to do. And we made the decision to move to LA. So that's how we got here. <laughs> and how would you compare, if there is any significant difference, working as a professional musician in Europe versus the United States? Well, of course, my experiences were very different in that. In, in my time in Europe, I had a job, job. Mm -hmm. And I'm a freelancer, really. I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I'm lucky. I have, I have a very nice teaching job, and I have the job in opera. So that's, that's a pretty nice foundation right there. And I do other things on this aside. My, you know, my passion is chamber music. I love doing chamber music, so I do a lot of that. It's interesting you ask that because uh, our music director at, at the opera is James Conlon, and he conducted at the Salzburg Festival recently, and he, you know, he's had a number of music director positions in Europe. And so I asked him, I said, so what, <laughs> what do you think the difference is between conducting over there and conducting here? And he, he gave me some elusive answer. He didn't really answer my question, but this is what I think. <laughs> <laughs> 
in my experience over there, I almost always felt like, I'm talking about orchestra work now, working with the conductor was a collaboration that we were in this together. Mm-hmm. And my, my teacher, Erdberger, had a famous quote about that, about, and I wish I could remember the name. It was a Russian conductor who, who came to conduct the Vienna Philharmonic and said, everywhere else in the world, I'm the general and I'm in control. But here, you're the generals. <laughs> mm-hmm. I, I feel like um, European orchestra musicians just, in my experience, and maybe things have changed. I've been long 20 years now, so it's could have changed. But I just felt like they... It was a collaborative experience where we were working together to get a result. And here I feel people live in fear almost of the conductors, that they're intimidated by the conductors. And I'm like, oh, we're on the same team, right? We want, <laughs> we want to make music. We want to make a, a, a good presentation. So that's always been a little puzzling to me, I have to say. that It seems that people are, are more fearful here in, in performance. Does that make any sense? It does. And I wonder if you have any thoughts on how to turn that around. Maybe not how to turn it around, but what you feel is missing that makes people more fearful. It goes back to what we talked about a little bit about the, um, you know, the audition process here. That is like, if you make any little mistake, you're out the door. It's a fear of failure, probably. Yeah, just just a, a, a fear of getting mixed, I guess. And then you're not allowed to take risks. Yes. I have a, a wonderful young student right now. We did Shostakovich 10 with the uh, USC Symphony last week. And she really went for, you know, the high point in the phrase and risked the down slur. And it was so dramatic and it was so wonderful. And I was so proud of her. And... Um, I you know made a point of praising her for it after the fact. Yeah, I, I mean that's why that's why we got into this, right? We want to mm-hmm. say something. <laughs> we want to uh, make a statement. And I think if you're just playing it safe, you're missing an opportunity. It's a shame. As I say, it's not. I don't think it's why we got into this. We got into this because we got inspired hearing someone do something amazing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I would love to ask about, since you mentioned you do a lot of freelancing, you have a lot of diversity in your career. You do chamber music, you record, you teach, you perform regularly at an extremely high level. And I'm wondering if it took you a while to find that balance and if you learned anything in the process. Basically, how do you get through freelancing in a way that will make you happy? (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think many music schools now, including USC, are are developing these programs to help people with this, exactly this topic. Um, because, as you know, I'm sure I don't need to tell you, the conservatories are churning out more qualified applicants than there are jobs. Yeah. That's that's the truth. And so, just about every school I think now is developing these programs where, basically, they're saying take the initiative, be in charge of your life. And I have to say, I am inspired when I see these, you know, had a young flute and guitar duo from USC recently, you know, they're doing very well, but you know, that you have to hustle, you have to be self-motivated and proactive. You know, you have to, first of all, you have to know what you want (laughs) and uh, focus, focus on that. And you know, all the obvious things show up on time, have a smile on your face, 
be a good colleague. <laughs> when uh, I, te- I coach chamber music at USC also, and I'm happy to say I've been able to help a, a couple of young people get out into the scene here because, you know, if they come up, if they show up to quintet coaching on time and didn't forget their music and are prepared <laughs> and have a good attitude, and somebody calls me and says, do you know a horn player? I'm happy to be able to pass their name on. So, you know, just all the things you hopefully learned at home, good manners <laughs> and taking care of business. I, I don't, I don't think there are any shortcuts. I don't think there are any magic pills with that. In practice. <laughs> practice a lot. <laughs> and part of what you've done is play on many motion picture movie scores. And that is an experience that, uh, Galit and I have never had, and probably the most of our listeners have never had. I want to know what is that like? Uh, how does that even work when you go in there? Um, you know, I want to know all about that and, and your cool memories from being a bassoon movie star. Oh boy. <laughs> that's, that's a, that's a, We'll just call that an exaggeration, but um, I think that kind of the, the common thing that the people who, who do that regularly say is um, film scoring is, is 90% boredom and 10% terror. It's just, I don't want to make it sound too drastic, but I mean, there, there is a lot, especially now, there's something they do called striping, where you've got the full orchestra there, and you'll play the cue through a few times, and then they'll say, okay, strings only. So they record just the strings, and then they'll say woodwinds only. And they record just the woodwinds, and then they'll do brass, just the brass, because they want to have ultimate control over the balance. Sure. And that, that wasn't so common, I'm going to say, 20 years ago. But if you have the misfortune of sitting in the contra chair, and they oh. say winds only, <laughs> usually the contra is pretty much with the trombones often, or with the basses, right? You're not, you might be doubling the first bassoon, or you know, might be with the bassoons, but you're probably not with the flutes and the oboes and the clarinets. You're probably just by, so you're there, you are playing your poor contrabassoon all by yourself. <laughs> so, that's not so fun. I'll just go on record saying that. <laughs> <laughs> but there are wonderful experiences. Um, the, the level is very high. Obviously great talents from around the country come here, hoping to get into that scene. And um, you can have wonderful experiences <laughs> Um, doing that. I'll, I'll just, I'll tell you one. Um, I've, I've had the good luck to be on a number of John Williams scores. And uh, one of them is a film you may not have heard of called Amistad. Yes, about I'm familiar the, with Amistad. Uh, the bringing of, of the Africans to America to be slaves. And I was sitting there behind my controversy and all of a sudden there was this unbelievable trumpet solo. And uh, I turn around, and it was, I didn't know if you, this isn't so interesting for double read dish, but was a trumpet player named Tim Morrison, who used to be principal in the Boston Pops and had come out here because he, when Mr. Williams had the Boston Pop, I think they had a very nice relationship that Mr. Williams very much appreciated Tim Morrison's playing. And I just, it was one of those experiences where I, you know, your jaw drops to your knees and you go, goodness what is that it was so wonderful and so beautiful so if you if you watch Amistad and you hear amazing trumpet playing that's what that is (laughs) that was a wonderful experience 
What other films can we hear you on? <laughs> I don't know if you can actually hear me on anything. I did get, I did play on both of the, I don't even know if the second one's out yet, on both of the Frozen movies. What? And it is, it is funny because I got a little fan letter from some eighth grade bassoon player in Texas <laughs> saying, I don't, you know, I, I listened to it and I heard the bassoon and, and I went home and I picked out the bassoon part on my bassoon and I'm just like, isn't, isn't that wonderful? Like, as I say, you know, we, especially at that age, we get inspired by such things, some little thing that um, you say, oh, I want to do that. So that's, that's wonderful if you can be a part of that. Definitely. I'm just curious what inspires you. Do you have any um, activities that you like to do outside of music that refill your well, or do you have any pieces that you go back to to be re-inspired, or is it does it happen through your teaching? I do find teaching very inspirational. I learn so much from my students, <laughs> and I, it's one of the things I find fascinating about teaching that uh, I don't do much over the summer. You know, I might do a couple lessons here or there, but. Uh, you can have your summer break and I come back in the fall and I'm trying to express the same concept I've been trying to express to them for two or three years, whatever, but without even thinking about it too much, I think taking the break in the summer, I've come up with another way to say it. Hmm. And I think that's an, an amazing thing about our brains. That it's, you know, and it's, we, we, we have guest uh, master classes almost every semester at USC Sean Mauser is the other bassoon teacher there. And we sit there and we, we grin and we say, thank you for saying that, but saying it in another way than they've heard it before. <laughs> and just, um, and when you finally see the little light bulb go off where they get it, it's like, okay, this has been worth it. Trying to find 47 different ways to say the same thing. <laughs> um, so def definitely, definitely teaching is a big one. I think it's one of the big bonuses of being in an opera orchestra um, is hearing great singers. Mm. Um, my teacher, Erdberger in Vienna, always emphasizes, don't, don't play like a bassoon player, play like a great singer. He sang with us in our lessons. He sang everything with us, every etude, every sonata, every concerto. And I think that's one of the great pluses of the Vienna Philharmonic is because most of the time they're an opera orchestra. I think you can hear that very singing quality in their playing, especially the strings. But yeah, hearing great singers. Um, my husband and I love to hike. We do a lot of hiking. We're fortunate to have the Sierra here, which is just amazing landscape. And yeah, so something outside in nature is a good thing. <laughs> Speaking of your husband, you collaborate with him a good deal on pieces and have recorded many of his works. And being married, I'm sure there's an extra dynamic layer to it. Uh, but I would love for you to tell our listeners a bit about the direct collaboration with a composer in the creating of music and especially what that's like over the long term. Well, I am very fortunate and very spoiled to, <laughs> to have, have his, his writing for the bassoon. I, you know, he's added, I think, upwards of 16 pieces that include the bassoon our repertoire so and i find them great fun to play i'd say he he says he tries to write things that he would like to play you know so just right um <laughs> the first piece he wrote 
that included the sim was a duo for flute and bassoon, which we haven't recorded yet, but we will probably. <laughs> and um, when we went over that the first time, he was so picky about every little articulation and phrase, and I'm like, oh my goodness, this is going to be very difficult. <laughs> but that has changed. He's he's uh, got much more open to um, allowing a little interpretation on the part of the instrumentalist. And uh, I have to say, I think we both find it a very positive experience to uh, for him to create these pieces, and I really enjoy learning them. I find it very gratifying. I think we both enjoy the process a lot. Do you ever say hey, this is too hard. What are you trying to do to me? <laughs> no high Fs. <laughs> well, um, I have. I have told him, and I, maybe I'm a wimp, but um, I have told him, I think if you can't say what you have to say up to a high D, maybe you need to reconsider what you have to say. Oh. And, <laughs> and I'll, tell, I'll tell you why. And, and it's not because I can't play a high E or a high F. I can but I have to change my setup. I have to, you know, either take a read that is not going to give me what I want in the middle and tenor range um, to be able to do that. So I, I think, you know, I, I've played Boutry. I can do it. Um, <laughs> but I just think it, especially on the German bassoon, I think it takes away a quality that, at least for my setup, the setup I like, I, I, um, causes me to have overtones I don't want to have. The bassoon, as I understand it, just lives better. Not not getting there. It's, you know, unless it depends how you approach it. I don't need to explain that to you. Um, and if you really have something dramatic, you want to say, like, I think the Boutry is a great example. Um, mm. The first time I heard that piece, I don't know, are you familiar with the name Knut Sunstewald? Do you know that bassoonist? Uh, no. He's another uh, Urberger student. Check out his recordings. I think they're awesome. <laughs> The first time I, I heard his recording of the Blue Tree, I, there's another talk about inspiration. I said, oh, I have to play that. You know, and I, I had to get the music right away, and I started working on it, and I had to make myself stop practicing so I wouldn't hurt myself, you know, so I wouldn't <laughs> um, overtax my hands because uh, it's quite technical. But it just is such an awesome piece. And so, yes, certainly there is use and call for the high, high notes, but I think you can say a lot, a third lower or two. <laughs> so in, in all of the years that Gernot and I have been together, uh, the only thing he wrote where I had to say, I really think that's not easily realizable, is um, he has a very nice piece for oboe, bassoon, and piano. Ooh. And the original version of that, in the last movement, he had, um, Jackie will be able to relate to this or maybe you have a trick you can tell me i don't know it was quite fast triplets from low d flat up to the octave higher and i forget what note was in between where you had to go like and uh and i said you know i think i think i can't do that i can't figure out a good if it were c's you know you put the lock on but you have to get back down there was i couldn't find a good trick right so that's the one time in all the pieces he written where i said you know i don't think i can do that Just as a follow-up, in case some of our listeners are hearing you talk about Gernot's music and wanting to check out some of these pieces for bassoon on their own, is there one in particular that's your favorite that you think, oh, people should definitely be playing this and, and hearing this work? It's like asking who's your favorite child. That's Yes, I, that's <laughs> true. 
Um, one of my absolute favorites to play. He has a beautiful piece um, for violin, bassoon, and piano called Lyrical Intermezzo, which we've also not recorded yet. There is a recording out there by the, the group who commissioned that. It's a Viennese-based group. But that, I, that combination of one stringed instrument and one wind instrument and piano, I think, is wonderful. I do enjoy that one a lot. And just, just for the double reed nerds out there, he, he does also have a very fun piece for uh, oboe and bassoon. I'm excited to look into that. That sounds great. You guys could play it. Definitely. <laughs> well, and we'll link to um, his website in the show notes as well for people who are curious. Oh, thank you. We were speaking about reads just a little bit ago, and I have mm-hmm. kind of a two-parter in terms of, could you uh, just talk to us about your approach to read making, what you prioritize, and how that fits into your working life? But my second part of it, and I don't mean to keep harping on the Europe versus the United States, but I think it is a unique experience that you bring to the field and in the oboe world, obviously the reed style mm-hmm. is so drastically different. Mm-hmm. Did you experience anything, albeit on a smaller level, I would assume, in terms of the approach to reed making or the priorities in that craft? I'll start with your second question first. Okay. Um, I do think the difference between European and uh, I'm American playing is not as drastic as the oboe right. situation. Um, and, <laughs> and a kind of funny aside, when I moved here, um, are you familiar with the name David Breitenthal? No. Was the principal bassoonist of the Los Angeles Philharmonic, and he studied with a man named Fritz Moritz, who had emigrated here from Berlin hmm. during the war. So Fritz Moritz brought a very Germanic style of playing to Los Angeles. Oh. Um, Fritz Moritz actually taught people here about flicking, and we do not have to get into that subject at all, but we can if you want. <laughs> <laughs> and my understanding is, is that Fritz Norman Hertzberg learned about flicking from Fritz Moritz, and that's how Mr. Hertzberg became such a disciple of flicking. Mm. So anyway, um, there was a pretty heavy German accent when I got here, I will say. And the interesting thing to me was I found that they were almost more German than the Germans. Interesting. <laughs> um, and my teacher, Urberger, said that often. Like he said, he felt the, the Viennese school in those days called for no vibrato, period, for anybody, not even flutes. They all played super straight tones. And he, when he would listen to an American orchestra and hear the bassoons, he'd say, they listen to the French school and they exaggerate the vibrato. For him in those days, I think that's gotten better, but he found it too much. And so I felt like I had to actually get more European when I got here <laughs> to so you know, uh, make my reads a little thicker, a little heavier. And that, that I think is also influenced by the studio scene because of the close miking mm-hmm. that uh, you just can't have any highs in your sound. You, oh, have to, you have to really be on the dark side. So if anything, I, I had to thicken up my reads a little bit. And it's also the difference here. The halls are bigger. So you have to be able to push a little harder. Vienna just has a wealth of wonderful halls. I think the Musi crime, I forget, 1300 or 18. It's not more than 1800. I should know that, but I don't remember right now. Um, so you don't have to push so hard. And so you can have a read that is more flexible and allows you um, more freedom, more, yeah, more nuance. 
in here, I feel like you need something a little beefier to, to get out because the halls are bigger. Um, so, it, you know, that you'd probably get a very different answer if I ended up settling in New York. I think, mm. you know, there's a difference that I think there is an East, kind of an East Coast, West Coast style to things. Right. To answer your question about reads, I try to be systematic. I, I should take my own medicine as what I teach <laughs> just okay. to be good, good, good about, um, you know, I try to clip two blanks a week and I always have something in process. I wish, I wish someone had told me that when I was a student, <laughs> I did not have good read guidance for the most part as a student, I will say, but I, you know, I've gotten pretty systematic about it in my teaching and I try to do it for myself that I just always try to have something in each phase of production so that I don't get stuck. That's <laughs> Mordecai always said, don't get stuck, you know, <laughs> don't. You won't, don't want to be in a jam if you can avoid it. Yeah. <laughs> what is something that in your teaching, maybe your top one or two things that you would love for your students to come away from their time with you having internalized and taking with them into the professional world? I, I think what we said before about, you know, just make sure you always incorporate the music. Don't just play notes. <laughs> I spend a lot of time, and this is probably Mordecai Rechman's influence a lot. Um, just playing in tune is important. <laughs> so we really, especially try to emphasize your first and last notes of phrases. Just cast an eye on the tuner, make sure that you're not starting sharp or ending sharp because that's what we tend to do. Right? Ah, yes. That's a good point. I hadn't thought about it that way. We're usually okay in the middle, but just, you know, we, we tend probably to bite a little bit to get started and we let go of our ER before we're finished. And, yes. And I um, try to emphasize that. Try to you know, Good sound production. <laughs> it's a wind instrument. It's not an embouchure instrument. <laughs> it's, try, so, yeah, I think that try to come combine good sound production with good musicianship. That, that's already, that's a lot right there, right, <laughs> if you can do that. Absolutely. Can you tell us about a favorite memory that sticks out in your mind uh, of a past performance? Oh, wow. <laughs> I've been so lucky. Um, probably a real standout. I, I really had the great good fortune to work with Leonard Bernstein when I was in Vienna. Um, the radio orchestra recorded his opera, A Quiet Place. Mm. And this was in the late 80s. And um, I remember sitting there and thinking, I might as well just retire now. I mean, this is as good as it's going to get, right? This is really, he was truly amazing. And the personification of a great musician. It was really a, a, a truly wonderful experience, I'd say. Are there any memories from the stage that you would like to share with us that are perhaps memorable for a different reason, perhaps <laughs> embarrassing? <laughs> Plenty of those too, but uh, a standout is probably um, the orchestra I was in, the radio orchestra. We, on several occasions, were the backup ensemble for competitions, piano competitions, conducting competitions, uh, or vocal competitions, and uh, one time it was a an opera competition and the finals were live on television with no rehearsal. We didn't know what arias were going to be played when, when the singer came out. So it's wonderful aria in the second act of Magic Flutes, uh, Pamina, 
the aria starts and then the bassoon has a beautiful solo, I think in the fourth or fifth measure that starts on an E flat, tenor E flat. And so I start on my E flat and play this descending scale, including an A flat. And unfortunately, there are only two flats in the key signature. (laughs) (laughs) That was not good. That was humiliating. (laughs) And I couldn't take it back. (laughs) That was out in the ether. So that was too bad. (laughs) I had never played it, so I I didn't know. (laughs) (laughs) Whoopsie. What is some advice that you would give to a young musician who aspires to have a career like yours? Oh, practice, 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 practice. (laughs) I'm sure everybody's heard about the 10,000 hour thing. And I think that's, some people are now saying that's not true. Whatever. It can hurt. It's money in the bank. I, I was lucky, as I said, you know, my parents were both musicians. My sister and I both played clarinet before we switched to our double reed instruments. And, we had to each practice one of our instruments before breakfast in the morning and then the other one after breakfast in the morning before we went to school. And when I got to, to IU, I would purposely schedule myself an 8 a.m. theory class and practice for an hour before that. I just, it was how I was raised. Yes. <laughs> and it's, it seems to me people who do have success in our field, that's a habit a lot of them had in common. Some, some people are night owls, some people do it late at night. And again, I wish I could take my own medicine now. (laughs) But um, I do think if you do it first thing in the morning, pay yourself first, your mind is clear. And it's just, you know, what you if you get that first hour in whatever, you have that for the day, because so much can come up to keep you from getting around to it. I love that idea of paying yourself first. That's great. Judith, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. It's been such a dream to talk to you. We really appreciate you giving us your time. Well, thank you so much for having me. And again, I, you know, big shout out to you guys. I really think it's wonderful what you're doing and uh, wish you continued success. Thank you. That means a lot. (laughs) It's been a pleasure. I hope you enjoyed that interview as much as I did. You can follow us on all of our social media, including Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And you can listen to Double Read Dish on YouTube, SoundCloud, iTunes, Podcasts, uh, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you love us, leave us a review. We love hearing from you always. And if you need to send us an email, it's doublereaddish at gmail.com. Who do we have coming up next episode, Jackie? Next episode, we have Reed Message, Associate Professor of Oboe at the University of Georgia. Galit, what time is it? Time to end this nerd parade. (laughs) Go make reads.